Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our guest today is well-known cryptozoologist Ken Gerhardt. Hello, Ken. Hey, Scott. How are you doing today, buddy? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, uh, thanks for having me on. It's absolutely an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Well, yeah, you know, our main theme is water monsters, and you just wrote a great book on the subject, very Thank comprehensive, you. worldwide in perspective, so that is what we're here to talk about today. Sounds good. I'm excited to dig in. And what makes your book stand out from a lot of the recent books is your resurrection of the relic archaeocete theory. Yes. you don't hear a whole lot about today. It was very popular in the 80s. Roy Mackle promoted it. Mm -hmm. And I think it has roots going back through Ivan Sanderson, Bernard Hubelman's, um, all the way back. Do you, are, you ever heard of an English naturalist named Richard Carrington? Yes, I have one of his books, Mermaids yeah, he and was, Mastodons. He was also mm -hmm. um, a proponent of that theory as well. Yeah, it's been around a long time, as you suggest, just like the long-necked seal theory and the plesiosaur theory. All of those have been floated around since, you know, probably the at least the late 19th or 19th century, mid-20th mid century. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't know it, but there was a time that Odomans dabbled in that theory as well before he adopted the giant seal idea. Ah. And at nice. the time, mm -hmm. they weren't sure exactly where Bacillus fit into the scheme of things. And there was actually an idea at one point that seals and whales shared a common ancestor. Yes, that's and true. And Ultimans bought into the idea that Basilosaurus was a missing link between whales and pinnipeds. He later changed his mind and went with a pinniped theory, but there for a while he was proposing an animal called, I believe he called it Zuglodon plesiosauroides, huh. a hypothetical Zuglodon shaped like a plesiosaur. That was his sea serpent. Wow. Yeah, well, well anyway... I'll let you um, I'll let you set this up about your book. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I've always wanted to write a book about aquatic cryptids, Scott. Um, I felt this was a good year to tackle it. I had a lot of free time on my hands, stuck at home for months on end. And, um, you know, going back, my interest in lake monsters goes back to 1982. When I was 15 years old, my family vacationed at Loch Ness. My mother knew I was already interested in cryptozoology at a young age, so uh, she kind of set up a fishing trip for me and my dad at Loch Ness. And, um, of course, I spent most of the time there um, trying to find out about Nessie, the Loch Ness monster. Uh, at the time, I had a little 8-millimeter movie camera, and um, you know, I kind of camped out around the lake, looking out, gazing out at the water, and I also spoke to a lot of the locals around that, that I ran into and tried to find out if anyone had seen the thing. So it's been kind of a lifelong passion of mine as far as lake monsters go. And of course, I've dabbled in a lot of areas of cryptozoology, but, um, you know, this is uh, just a fulfillment of, of a vision that I've had. And uh, similar to my last book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, 
it's really designed to be a primer or kind of an introduction to lake monsters like the Loch Ness Monster and others. So it's, you know, it's designed to give the reader the most accurate, objective information that I could gather, interviewing many experienced investigators like yourself, uh, you know, going to some of the older texts and books, as you mentioned, people like Outermans and Hoovelmans and Carrington and people back in the day that, that covered a lot of areas. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, obviously uh, I could have probably done an entire book on the Loch Ness Monster, but I felt like it was important to show the broad scope of the lake monster phenomenon. And Scott, moreover, I'm personally I'm convinced that the Loch Ness Monster is the same species or related to other lake monsters like Champ and Ogopogo and also related to accounts of sea serpents in the ocean because – you know, when you go through and read the accounts, hundreds or thousands of them, I mean, the similarities and descriptions are always very consistent. Uh, very long, uh, snake-like or slender uh, animals that vertically undulate through the water up and down, which is a mammalian characteristic. Many people describe the skin, if they've seen the skin or the humps, as being very smooth, like a whale. You hear that a lot. Yep. Uh, the head is described as being kind of horse-like, which... You know, uh, I think is a matter of interpretation, but, you know, as you know, whales descended, we now think, from artiodactyls, which are, you know, hoofed animals. Yep. So, I don't know, it just, uh, you know, and also the fluke tail, you know, that's just people that have been lucky enough to see the tails of these animals have described it as looking like a whale's tail or a fluke. And yep. then there's a few other subtle things like bl uh, blowing behaviors, spouting behaviors that have been described, echo, possible echolocation. Mm -hmm. And and the majority of sightings in very cold water environments. So yeah. you're you're right. I was first actually really put onto the idea by reading uh, Roy, Dr. Roy Mackle's book, Searching for uh, Hidden Animals, back in 1980, where he talked about the zoogodon as being a the best candidate, or you know, archaeocete as being the best candidate to explain Canadian lake monsters like Ogopogo, and um, you know, it just kind of resonated with me that, you know, it, it just seemed like a pretty, based on all of the evidence, it seemed like a very likely candidate. Well, the feature, <clears throat> the feature that makes people come back so much to the plesiosaur idea is the descriptions of the long neck. Yeah, that's true. And that is one of the problematical parts of the archaeocene theory is that most of well evolution has gone against the evolution of long necks. But I will say, we do know that living belugas and river dolphins have somewhat of a neck. And Bacillosaurus itself had somewhat of a neck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, according to conventional paleontology, that branch of the whale family has supposedly been gone for 25 million years. Right. But if it managed to survive, it may have went in its own direction, away from what we see in the Mysticetes and Odonocetes. So we just don't know. It's certainly possible. Yeah, um, you're right. That is a, The long-neck sightings are a strong argument against, because as you mentioned, the, the, the neck vertebrae are fused rather, you know... At, have become more fused in, in more recent whale species. But um, you bring up two, you know, you bring up a strong point there. There's actually three points I want to make with regard to the long neck argument. 
One is that, according to Roland Watson, Loch Ness Monster Investigator, who's done a pretty thorough analysis of, of many Nessie sightings, only about 15% of Nessie sightings describe a long neck. So whereas people have this image in their head of the long neck and the small head poking out of the water, 85% of Nessie witnesses simply describe large humps undulating through the water and rarely describe a neck or a head. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a mis misperception there. But to your point about evolution, and yes, you're right, there's been 25 million years for things to change. So in my book, I describe a descendant of a basilisk or an archaeocete, not, not necessarily a cookie-cutter you know, yeah. that's not how evolution works. It's not the same animal. It's just in that same lineage. Yeah. Well, Roy Mackle actually made a hypothetical long-necked Zuglodon descendant model. I think I've shown you pictures of it. I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I put it in the uh, slideshow to go with this interview. So he was working along those lines as well. And he also suggested that maybe the species that we're talking about here actually predated basilosaurs may have been an earlier form of uh yeah. of, well, of, of primitive know, whale for a long time basilosaurus and dorodon and zygorrhiza were the only archaeocetes we knew about up until the 1980s and then 1980s 1990s you had this explosion mm -hmm. of discoveries of the more primitive forms like pachycetus and protocetus, rhodocetus, mm -hmm. you know, and all these intermittent missing links. And now you've got basically a complete series going from the land ancestor, which had legs with feet, all the way through Basilosaurus and into the modern whales. Right. Yeah, so... Yeah, no, that's true. And that existed only 30, 40 years ago. It's changed drastically. So now there's a whole mosaic of early whales with different features, you know. And there's Some still probably a pretty big like gap, seals. right, Scott? Some of them look almost like seals, you know, they're amphibious. Absolutely. Yeah. But to, to your point there, I mean, there's still some pretty big gaps in our fossil record for any species or lineage of animals. So, I mean, there's, like you yeah. said, new things are being discovered all the time and uh, long held theories are sometimes rewritten as new fossils are found. But there's, there's one last thing I want to add to that, which is there's an interesting parallel uh, with regard to what we're talking about with potential an extension of the cervical column on these, you know, archaeocetes to where they get the longer neck and giraffes or giraffids. So the modern giraffes that we all know and love at the zoo with this super long neck and the crazy morphology, those evolved over a period of about 25 million years from the Miocene when you had short neck giraffes uh, like Cybotherium, which looked yeah. very similar to modern Okapis. Okapis, now, I was just going to mention. Yeah. Yeah. So the ad the adaptation over millions of years that the, the cervical column lengthened as giraffes tried to reach higher and higher into the trees to to eat higher branch you know the leaves off higher branches. Now I can't really postulate an example of why there would be a benefit or an adaptation where an archaeocete would develop a longer neck. Well, you know what advantage that Alaska, would provide. So there's a perfect example of a marine animal 
that evolved the super long neck like that, and also tennis trophies. Well, that's true. I mean, so, that's that's an analogy. I mean, it's but you know, it's an example that you can point to and say, "See, it happened with this animal." So, yeah. So you know, nature takes all kinds of interesting directions sometimes. But uh, the bottom line is that according to Mackle's checklist, and you you know, Scott, he had a. He had proposed several different identities for the Loch Ness yep. Monster and created categories based on their features. And uh, the highest scoring, I believe, was a giant amphibian. It was like 88% score. Yep. And then he had giant eel. That was up there, too, maybe in the high 70s, low 80s. And then and yep. then it was some type of archaeoceat. And, you know, it was up there 78 to 84%, you know, in terms of matching and correlating with all of the descriptions that 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 he'd heard and collected around Loch Ness the years that he was there investigating. Yeah. Well, one thing I remember him saying somewhere was that it was the diving profiles on sonar that partially pushed him into the mammal direction and, and whales. Hmm. Has something to do with it. I can't remember all the specifics, but... That 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 may be true. I don't recall that I specifically. Believe, I'm sure you're right. I believe he said that on the Nova special about Nessie mm. from 1999. Well, yeah. there cer- certainly were a lot of sonar contacts at Loch Ness starting in 1953, but really amping up. You know, in the early 60s, Oxford and Cambridge mounted yep. a, a, an early sonar expedition, but in the late 60s. Uh, then you had um, Dennis Tucker, who was uh, a professor from Birmingham University, showed up yep. with some sonar rigs, yep. and then the LNIB, and um, and then of course Robert Rines yep. brought a guy named uh, Jerry Klein along, who was a so you know, and all of these. So there were there was a lot of sonar, and that's the thing about these lake monsters, Scott. And I'm sure you agree with me that I think a lot of people overlook. They always kind of focus on the alleged photographic evidence and sightings. But we really have a really substantial amount of sonar evidence in Loch Ness, yep. Champlain, Okanagan, you know, and other lakes, and and a lot of those are very consistent. They describe elongate animals, twenty to forty feet long, um, and I understand sonar doesn't always give you a real accurate depiction of what an animal is shaped like. It's just kind of a, a facsimile. But um, so to me, that's very compelling. You know, the, the sonar evidence is. Well, Will and Will Jorginus and I had a really interesting sonar contact in 2017. Oh yeah, which yeah, is you... on the uh, Alexander's uh, on the Trail of Champ documentary. Right, I remember that. Yeah. What did you guys see again? It was, or what did you? What did uh, you? An object interpret? Roughly 10 to 13 feet long, with a round, blobby body. An elongated appendage coming off that, and it swam underneath the boat for about two minutes. All right. Yeah, I've seen the image. Now that you mention it, I've I've seen you post the image different places. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, there there are different layers of evidence, uh, you know, for these animals, whatever they are. And yeah. uh, again, I I don't push. I I don't know. You can tell me. I, I d- tried not to push the the archaeocet theory too hard. I just kind of suggested it as uh you know as a possibility but i i always with all my books i like the reader to remain objective and try to draw their own conclusions you know based on what they think you know well you know i've always found it a very compelling also ran theory you know uh certainly more exciting than the idea of a giant seal i mean 
whatever they turn out to be, it's going to be an exciting discovery. But, but you know, discovering some animal from the fossil record or one of its descendants that's not supposed to be here anymore makes for a more exciting find than, you know, some of the other alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, some of the, th- the arguments, I guess, at least in my own mind, Scott, I mean, we've talked about this as well. Pinnipeds or seals are by nature extremely curious and gregarious animals that yeah. really seem to want to interact with. They're basically dogs, right? <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're water dogs. The behavior, the behavior of known pinnipeds does not fit with what we know about these lake monsters. No, they're elusive and uh, you know deep diving and don't come on land too often if they do. But um, and then the other theory that you know I try to push back a little bit is the giant eel theory, which I know particularly in Loch Ness. Some of the more skeptical investigators through the years have suggested this this unique eel theory of of you know of a monster eel, conger eel, maybe fifteen feet long or whatever. I'm, I think that could be that might be a possibility in some of the sightings. In fact, some eyewitnesses have definitively stated what I saw looked like a giant eel. But in my own mind, there's just not enough evidence that that eels in Loch Ness could get that big. No one's ever pulled no, a fifteen foot eel out of the loch. If Nessie is an eel, I believe it is it's a conger eel that has somehow managed to adapt to fresh water. That's the only answer I'll accept. Because right. we know congers can get 10 feet long. They might can get bigger. We just don't know. But there are uh, accurately measured specimens 10 feet long as big around as telephone poles, which is pretty impressive. So. Well, well, I had, I had, admittedly, Scott, I had trouble tracking those down because I tried to verify and I did find several photos and, and documented examples of seven-foot congers, and those were all kind of caught out in the ocean, not in fresh water. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but I, uh, I, somewhere I have a photograph of a genuine 10-foot conger eel. Okay, so, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. This that would be a tru- truly a monster. But even that wouldn't really explain Nessie sightings because yeah. you know, most estimates of Nessie start at least 15 to 20 feet, you, you know. Yeah, so. well, look like a giant conger eel. Yeah. Basically, a, a giant conger eel with the head of a crocodile. Mm-hmm. And flippers and a, and a, a tail flute, like a whale. A behavior pattern probably very similar to a crocodile in terms of being an ambush-type predator. Now, there are a few strong arguments against the Basilosaur archaeocete theory, one being that, you know, and this is pointed out by my friend Lee Hales, who's a, a zoologist who wrote a, a section in my book, an appendix for my book. Yeah, basilosaurs, too. basilosaurs probably didn't dive very deep. You know, they were probably more shallow water predators based on their, uh, you know, their slender body. The elongation uh, of the body, I would say, yeah, that would. So, and I. Hydrodynamically built for deep diving. Exactly. And uh, they also didn't have a, a well-developed melon in terms of other cetaceans that utilize echolocation, yeah. you know, so, and, um, also the, you know, we already talked about the elongate neck. So there, you know, there are a few arguments, strong arguments you can make against the archaeocete theory with regard to these animals as well. Well, you know, every, every theory that's been put forward has problems of one, one sort or another, you know? Yeah. They are just theories after all. Yeah. Best guesses is all we, we can do. We have to so. first confirm in a biological sense that these animals are unique and exist. 
then we'll worry about the problem of finding out what they are. But these yeah. are good educated guesses. Yeah. Yeah. Be- best we can do. Um, yeah. And, you know, oh, one last one I forgot. Um, you know, our, our, our good friend and colleague Matt Billy brought this up to me after he proof uh, kind of reviewed the book for me. Um, you know, another issue with the Basilosaur theory is that, um, oh gosh, where am I going with this? Sorry, kind of, kind of blanked out there for a second. This will come back to me in a second if we keep, <laughs> so many different angles to these, to these theories. Oh yeah, the, the DNA study, the eDNA study that they did at Loch Ness, you know, in 2018 and 19, uh, this guy Gamel and the and the University of Otago from New yep. Zealand did this eDNA study in Loch Ness, and they pulled 250 water samples from different depths and locations. They filtered out the biological material and were evidently able to map about the genomes of about 3,000 species in Loch Ness. Lots of those plants and planktons and things, um, but they didn't come up with anything resembling whale DNA. So Matt, Matt kind of pointed that out to me. But, you know, the other side of that is that apparently 25% of the DNA that they collected was unidentified or yeah, they were unable to identify. So and that's, that's probably uh, standard. There's more holes in that. There are otters in Loch Ness and they found no otter DNA. Right. Seals occasionally get in. They found no seal DNA. Correct. Okay. There's a recent paper I found about how you need to sample in different types of sediment to get different results in one area. In other words, depending on what kind of soil or environment that you sample from, you're going to get different results. And look how deep Loch Ness is. Yeah, 754 feet verified and possibly over 800 feet unverified. Well, now, one more thing that really gives me question about the the, uh, DNA survey is that they did an environmental DNA survey of Lake Caspian looking for sturgeons. Mm -hmm. They were looking for six species of sturgeon that are supposed to live in the Caspian Sea. All right. Yeah. For conservation efforts, okay, they found absolutely no sturgeon DNA whatsoever. But they did find the other species of fish that they were expecting to find. So that right huh. there tells me that, you know, this, this is good technology, but there are potential loopholes there. Yeah, it's going to have limitations, but it, it's a tool. But it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Got, it's got, oh, it's I, I did, some... You know, it's the closest thing we have to a biological specimen from Loch Ness. I'm not knocking it, but I'm saying more work needs to be done, probably by Gimmel and his people at Loch Ness again. They need to refine their techniques and try it again. Yeah, it, it's probably frustrating for Nessie skeptics because... You know, as you know, Scott, through the years, there have been many attempts to declare, just like with this DNA, okay, we pr- we finally proven there's no Loch Ness monster, you know, but yeah, I, but I, there I, are always gaps in the arguments yep, where, where they can't yep. say that definitively, so. And then they turn around and say that we're holding on to straws, you know? Well, yeah. there are straws to hold on to. <laughs> well put. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So like even Operation Deep Scan, which, you know, happened in 1987, where they had these this flotilla of 25 sonar boats, uh, you know, that kind of swept the lock in unison like a big sonar net. But when you go back and look at the, the you know, in the first day, in fact, they did have two un, unidentified sonar hits. So even though their their objective was initially to, and this was led by, of course, Adrian Shine, the well-bearded Nessie skeptic that everyone sees on these different TV shows, um, he he, uh, the first day, I mean, they 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 tracked two sonar contacts that were about twenty feet long that they couldn't identify, and they they didn't they didn't see them again when they moved back over the spot later that day. The next day, they didn't see those contacts, but there was still a couple of mysterious contacts there. But the, the point being that their their strategy wasn't really 100% effective because there were a lot of bays and inlets and spots around Loch Ness that they didn't get to. Yeah. So even though they came out and declared that, you know, basically they had swept the lock clean for science and there was no Loch Ness monster, no such thing. Yeah. Even at that time, you know, they, they, they couldn't fully, I, I think, make that argument. Well, you know, part of the problem is, you know, People come up with proposed explanations for ambiguous pieces of evidence, which is all fine and good, but then they turn around and insist that their interpretation is the only possible interpretation. Mm. To me, that's problematic. You know, like like the whole controversy over the flipper photographs. Right. I believe that those are genuine. There might be some questions about some of the final versions, but I believe those are genuine pictures of something. Yeah, well, they, it certainly they coincided with some sonar that was that was also again there was yeah. a contact made. So I mean, it's it's a, it's a it would be a very happy coincidence that at the same time they're getting these sonar readings. Yeah. we're talking about That's, the Academy for Applied Science with the 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 underwater camera rigs and the strobe lights that they also got a photo of something that looks like a like wow. a flip. So Carl Sagan himself said that he was impressed by that evidence at the time because it was using evidence, what he called simultaneous modalities. In other words, there was evidence coming from two different uh, techniques, photographs and the sonar at the same time. Correct. Yeah, that's that's still controversial, too. Even the sonar part of it is. Yeah, everything with regard to uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Now, uh, some of the best photographic evidence, I think, in recent years with regard to Nessie, and most people think of the Loch Ness mystery as being very old, you know, from the 70s and 80s or even going back to the 1930s. But sightings do continue on a clip of about 10 per year on average. And sonar contacts, some of which were just announced uh, late last year. Oh, those are Um, very, very impressive, too. Yeah, uh, those those were impressive. Um, but you know there was also a, a, I think the best footage might be the the Gordon Holmes footage, which was shot back in two thousand seven by a Nessie investigator yep. named Gordon Holmes with a little camcorder, and yep. it clearly shows a long animate animal, kind of just under the surface of the water swimming along. At least that's my interpretation of it. It's all kinds of spray flying all over the place. Yeah, as it's and, moved. Uh, and Nessie skeptic Dick Rayner has has tried to argue that it's just a wind effect kind of on the surface of the water. But you can see well, a dark are, form. There are wind shears on Loch Ness coming off the mountains. And I've seen wind shears at, at uh, Lake Champlain myself. 
Right. But they don't look quite that impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So anyways, there, you know, there, so there are tantalizing bits of photographic evidence, mm -hmm. uh, but the sonar contacts are important. And I, I think that you can't really disregard the, the eyewitness accounts because you have so many. I think at Loch Ness now they're up to at least 3,000, maybe twice that, if you consider people that don't always come forward and tell their story. Yeah. They're, they're generally pretty consistent, Scott, as you know. I mean, it's, it's a big hump or it's several big humps undulating above the water. Yeah. Almost always on flat water days during the summer where the surface of the lake is very calm and flat. Um, and, you know, there have been a lot of people around, you know, people that have grown up around Loch Ness that even people that doubted that there could be a Loch Ness monster and were skeptical mm -hmm. most of their lives until they saw a large hump come out of the water and yeah. kind of just flashed out and then and then go under again. So, yeah. but uh, so, yeah, it's sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that um, one of the most impressive pieces of evidence to me pointing toward the possibility of an archaeo seat is the Naden Harbor carcass. Yes. I've never found the arguments that it was some kind of highly modified plesiosaur very compelling. But it's certainly got the morphology if you allow for the fact that parts of it may have deteriorated. Right. Or it might, the carcass itself might have dried up somehow and it had more bulk. It looks very much like what you would expect to see from an archaeocete. Absolutely. I'm a, I 100% agree, and I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners are educated, but the Naden Harbor carcass was pulled out of the stomach of a sperm whale back in 1937 at a place called Naden Harbor on Queen Charlotte Island off the coast of British Columbia. The flensers that cut it out of the stomach didn't know what the heck it was. They'd never seen anything like it. So the guy in charge there, uh, I think his name was Hubbard, he decided to have it put up on some boxes and a blanket a white sheet and they took pictures of this thing which is why we fortunately have photographs and it looks like it has kind of a camel-like or horse-like head yeah a long serpentine body the flipper placement in the front is about where you'd expect to see the flippers on a on a basilosaur and the tail appears to be flute yeah. so you're right it does kind of fit check all those boxes in my mind as well yeah now, well, sadly, the carcass wasn't saved. I'm sure everyone listening yeah. knows that, but we don't have yeah, it point, to study. So, we'll, we'll find a piece of it somewhere, you know? <laughs> I hope. Hopefully. Now, um, kind of segueing into that in Canadian Lake Monsters is, you know, the, the mysterious bone that was found, a vertebrae yep. that was found in, uh, in, uh, near Lake Winnipeg, Winnipegosis on the North Shore, you know the story, a guy named yeah. Oscar Fredrickson back in the 1930s yeah. found this big bone and um, clearly a, a, a vertebrae bone from, from a cetacean, a whale. Now, the story is that the bone was actually burned up in his, when his cabin or his home caught on fire, but he had carved a wooden facsimile of it about six inches by three inches. And this was later studied by a zoologist named James McLeod, who was at a yep. university up there in Canada. And this kind of got him excited in addition to sightings around Lake uh, Manitoba, Winnipegosis, yep. and some of those other Canadian lakes that, that maybe there was a 
And at least to his mind, Scott, didn't McLeod say that the, the, the bone looked almost identical to a to a some type of primitive whale or cetacean? Well, I happen to notice, I, I don't remember his quotes, but I happen to notice myself that it was shaped like a Bacillosaurus lumbar vertebrae, which would be on the back. Right. Where they would probably be getting most of their tail propulsion from, these elongated vertebrae in the back. If you break the processes off those barrel-shaped elongated lumbar vertebrae, you have something that looks almost just like the model that Fredrickson made. So, yeah, yeah very impressed. It's intriguing, you know, and again, it's, I guess the skeptics will argue, well, how did the, you know, why did this guy make a carve a facsimile of it in the first place? Isn't it convenient that the first one burned up? So there's always these kind of little mysteries within mysteries that we have to address in the field of yes. cryptozoology. So, uh, but, it, you know, I, I find it all very intriguing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, <clears throat> getting back to the horse head idea, you know, you look at a lot of these really early protocetted amphibious forms, Mm-hmm. They are much more horse-like too than even Bacillosaurus. And even though Bacillosaurus itself had a horse-like head, but there are also horse-headed plesiosaurs too. That's true. Yeah, I recently posted a picture of a plesiosaur head that looked like a camel's face. Wow, it's really strange. And another weird thing you may not be aware of. They have recently discovered, they already knew that plesiosaurs had tail flukes of some kind, but now they have come forward and said that plesiosaurs had horizontal tail flukes like a whale or a dolphin, mm. instead of up and down like a mosasaur or an ichthyosaur. So yeah, that is things fascinating. Are just, things are just getting weirder and weirder, you know? That's true. And, uh, you know, now that we're talking about this, I also remembered one other argument for and against on the Archaeocete theory. Uh, one for is that many descriptions of lake monsters and Cadborosaurus described hair, either yep. a mane on the head or vibris- vibrissi whiskers or something like that. Now, only, of course, only mammals have hairs. Now, it doesn't mean like some reptiles and amphibians might have hair-like structures or filaments. Yeah. But true hair is only found on mammals. Um, Yeah. So uh, an argument against, uh, you know, it's been pointed out to me recently that it's believed that archaeocetes were not as flexible. They They didn't display as much flexion when they swam as you know, maybe was earlier thought, even though they have a remarkable number of vertebrae in their, you know, going down their spine, you would think that they have this great flexibility to, to undulate up and down. Uh, but that's been argued to me recently that, that maybe that was not the case and they weren't able to. So again, we'd be talking, we'd be, you know, we're talking about a hypothetical species related to yeah. basilosaurs and archaeocetes, but not necessarily anything that we found in the fossil record. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it depends on what side of the line you are. If you're a skeptic, that would be called special pleading. If you're arguing from an evolutionary perspective, it's called speculative evolution. Right. So it all depends on your point of view, how you look at that sort of thing. 
absolutely. Paleontologists do it all the time within their field of interest. But you bring cryptozoology and start talking about these animals still being alive and the prehistoric survivor paradigm. Yes. It becomes special pleading. Yeah, which, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, going back to the Naden Harbor carcass, um, a guy named Darren Nash, who's a, you know, well-known. He's a uh, friend of mine. Yeah, he's a, he's a cool guy. He's a very smart yeah. guy, vertebrate paleontologist, writes Absolutely. a lot of excellent articles and things. And he's very he's open-minded. Uh, he has friend many friends who are cryptozoologists, but he's he's also very skeptical and writes yes, a lot I of skeptical know. argues. But even he, with regard to the Naden Harbor carcass, even he in an article admitted that this is not one that he could just easily write off. That yeah. this thing, you know, that you know, it, it it could certainly be some type of unusual species that had never been documented before. Now, uh, Matt Billy recently told me that he had kind of changed his tune on that a little bit later on and on a Twitter post and said that it could possibly be a decomposing ba- basking shark. Yeah. But uh, and no disrespect to Darren, because he's you know, he knows a lot more than I do in, in many areas. But um, it doesn't I mean. You can't make a basking shark out of the Naden Har- Harbor carcass. I'm sorry. We've both hair. seen enough. We've both hair seen enough of these is the decomposing. Patient gets that idea. I mean, the head looks like it's got well-formed hairs and a mouth and eyes. You wouldn't see that on a a basking shark neurocranium. Not like that. No. Uh, it it just to me it doesn't jibe. But anyways, that you know, it's worth pointing out that every once in a while, even a skeptic like Darren, yeah, you know, will, will oh, be objective yeah. enough to look at evidence and say, "Hey, I, I, I just can't explain that." So, I highly respect Darren, and I'm, I'm friendly with him. But there are some things that me and him vehemently disagree on. But that's just, you know, the way it is. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, he has probably been the strongest proponent against the prehistoric survival theory that oh, I know. many many of us cryptozoologists tend to, to embrace. Yeah. So well, you know, I mean <clears throat> you've got these reports. They sound like animals we know from the fossil record. They say, well, there's no fossil record past this point, so we we have to reject that hypothesis. Okay, then you're forced to make up a completely new type of animal with no fossil record. And obviously, it has a fossil record somewhere. Why not just say, well, okay, it's a survival of this animal we already know about, rather than just making up a new animal. Yeah, that's that's definitely a pet that's, peeve of mine, too, Scott. That's the logic I look at. You know? <laughs> that, so. that uh, you know, if I can use a, another reference in the field of cryptozoology, because I also investigate a lot of accounts of winged cryptids, and uh, two theories that have been put out there is the giant man-sized owl theory, you know, man-sized or bigger owl theory with regard Thank to things you. like the Mothman, and also the giant bat, man-sized bat theory. And there, there's just there's nothing in the fossil record that would ever indicate that such a species could have existed or did exist. So and that that kind of bugs me too. And, and pterosaurs that get that size, yeah, that we know about so. Yeah. So anyways, but, you know, they're all just best guesses. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I like to start out every lecture I do, Scott, by explaining to people, I don't call myself an expert. I don't consider myself an expert. I'm a speculator. And I just yeah. do the, I, I do the best speculation I can based on being as, as well informed as I can with all the available data and evidence. And, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly open to being proven wrong at any time. So, well, I'm not I'm not trying to argue with you here. I'm just, you know, discussing the, the various pros oh, and yeah. cons of the no, different not, theories, you know. I wasn't inferring that you were arguing with me. I was just saying, generally speaking, for, for yeah. any listeners out there that think, oh, these guys think they've got this, you know, all figured out. Who do they know? I'm just saying we're speculating, you know, we're, exactly. we're having, yeah. we're having uh, educated discussions based on our years of research into these areas. But yeah. it does, doesn't mean that we're not open to, to you know, changing course and, yeah. you know, moving well, I, on you know, to a different theory. People ask me what I am. I tell them I'm a cryptozoological investigator because you can't go to a university and get a degree in cryptozoology. It's an informal Subdiscipline of zoology, right? So people can do cryptozoology, but there you can't go and get a degree as a cryptozoologist. But it is a, an informal term for what people call what me and you would do, you know. So absolutely, and to anyone out there that's getting interested or or, or getting into the field. What I always try to emphasize, and I'm sure you're the same, Scott, is the word zoology within that context, you know. Well, uh, there's yeah. too much of a tendency for people to go into these kind of far out interdimensional theories and different things that don't have anything to do with zoology. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's exactly. what cryptozoology is based with. on. So, yeah, I mean, there are other fields to deal with that sort of evidence, parapsychology and ufology. Right. I'm not knocking them, but they aren't classical cryptozoology. Sure. I 100% agree. And I think that the argument from their perspective is always, well, why can't we find these things? And the rebuttal is that there are some species that are just incredibly elusive, probably very rare. And, uh, you know, there are things that, that we, we we're still discovering. So Richard Greenwell put it re really well one time. He said, if these animals really exist, there are very good ecological reasons why we haven't found them yet. Yeah, absolutely. Adaptation. You know, yeah. that's the key to everything in nature is some animals have adaptations that that's, that seem remarkable to us until we do the, the studies and, and the science and, and figure out, you know, why these things occur. So, um, Well, I don't know if you saw this. I can send it to you if you haven't. They did a recent... Uh, Genetic study on the two living coelacanth species. Yeah. And they found evidence that predicts that a third unknown species will be found. Oh, Based that is cool. Genetics. Yeah. That I'll is send you cool. the paper on that. This is brand new. So, would, would you think that that new species would be in the Gulf of Mexico? Because there have been rumors for years that well, that, that, that would be a possibility. I know about the little figurine that was found, I think, in Mexico. Right. Yeah. A lot of people have pointed to that. I don't know. Possibly. I mean, I don't see any reason why coelacanths could not exist in the same type of deep water environments as they're found in the Comoros and off Indonesia, anywhere else in the world. But, but the general idea is that 
the two living species have been split for something like 15 million years, and I think the reason for the split was the fact that the Indian subcontinent was moving to join with Asia. And as that subcontinent was moving, it split the two populations in two, and they evolved into separate species. Oh, wow. Okay. That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. This is an idea that's been floating around for a while, but this genetic, recent genetic study is predicting that somewhere, I can't remember exactly where, I don't think maybe even they know, but that somewhere around that region there is probably a third species that has yet to be discovered. Fascinating. Yeah. And nobody can change the fact that up until 1938, the coelacanth was supposed to have been extinct for at least 66 million years, possibly 80 or 90. Yep. And the only two fossils that have popped up post-Cretaceous since that time is one bone from the Paleocene of Sweden and a supposed whole fish from the Miocene of Lebanon. And that's it. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big gap. Post-Cretaceous fossil record for the coelacanth. You're right. That certainly bodes well for other unknown prehistoric survivors. Lazarus Taxon, if you will. Yeah, well, you know all this business about reworked fossils, right? Um, Refamiliarize my... All right, it's a phenomenon in geology and paleontology. They find a dinosaur bone, say, up in the Miocene in the middle Kenozoic. And they say, well, it got knocked out of its original fossil deposits. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been uh-huh. reworked. Okay, there's a lot of that stuff with dinosaurs and marine reptiles. I've got a whole list of fragmentary plesiosaur material going all the way up to the Ice Age from the end of the Cretaceous. So, you know, I don't know. It's possible that some of these, quote, reworked fossils may not be reworked. Right. Yeah, I, I see where you're going there. Yeah. It's all, it's all, again, it's all just guessing, you know, based yeah. on where they're found. So they, it's a best guess, and, and we, we certainly yeah, don't know I for mean, sure. I'm just saying, you know, people say, well, there's no, there's no plesiosaur bones past the Cretaceous. Yes, there are, but they're dismissed as a rework. Right. So... There's your Very cool. Yeah. According to conventional paleontology, the last of the Bacillosaurus lineage was this well in New Zealand called Kakenodon. Okay. And I've got a picture of the skull. I don't know if they've even found postcranial remains, but the skull looks identical to Bacillosaurus, but that doesn't tell you about the postcranial skeleton, whether it was elongated or if it was compact like Dorodon, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, for a long time, they thought that Bacillosaurus was primarily a fish eater, and now they've found evidence that it preyed on Dorodon. They found crushed skulls of Dorodon with Bacillosaurus bite marks in it. Yeah, well, they had incredibly powerful jaws and, uh, you know, basically like an alligator's dentition in terms of the number of teeth and the the, the sharp teeth and the powerful biting jaws. So 
Yeah, they were. Cer- it was certainly a species or an animal that that you didn't want to mess with or uh, yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't want to swim by if you were. Well, there's uh, some there's some really strange, interesting whales after the Bacillosaurus. <clears throat> you know, you got one called Odobinosatops that looks like a walrus. It's distantly related to the narwhals and belugas. And one of its teeth, you know how the narwhal's got that horn, it's actually a tooth that sticks out of its head. Right. Well, in this walrus whale, the uh, the tusks have turned backward, and they're, they're sticking out of the mouth like a walrus tusk. Yeah, and it that's... really does look like a walrus. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it was a contemporary megalodon, oh, God, 20 million years ago, something like that. 15 million years ago, but it's a really weird whale. And there's another one, an early tooth mysticetti ancestor mm-hmm. called Jangicetus, I think from maybe New Zealand, Australia, somewhere in there. But it's got a skull that looks like some plesiosaurs and also a leopard seal. It's a really weird looking whale. Wow, and now these are fairly fossil. Are these recent fossil discoveries, Scott? Like, when did these 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 newer species turn I'm up? I'm guessing eighties, nineties, somewhere in there. Okay, Not that so, sometimes it takes a while, even after they find the fossils, to kind of for a scientific team to get on the case and kind of draw some yeah, conclusions. Yeah, well, you know, so. a lot of times, a lot of times they'll take fossil slabs with fossils in them out of the ground and stick them in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, and forget about them and not get around to looking at them for 20, 30 years after they were originally pulled out of the ground and discover this stuff, you know? That's true. It took them 24 years to write a paper about a plesiosaur found in Kansas in 1987 with a baby embryo inside of it. The final paper didn't come out until 2011. Crazy. Yeah, so you never know what's going to pop up, you know? Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, um, tell us about the art. Sam Sheeran did the art in the book. Well, Sam did the cover art. Uh, very talented artist. Uh, thanks for bringing it up, Mr. Sam Sheeran. Uh, he's, uh, he does the cover art for some of the Small Town Monsters DVDs, and he did my Bigfoot cover for my last book. David Weatherly, another uh, another author, does the cover. So he, he's quite a brilliant artist. And then for some of the interior um, illustrations, many of them were done by my friend Bill Rebsamen, which who's a really talented artist. artist. I know him too. Yeah, yeah here he lives up in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he's yep. he's done work for Dr. Carl Schuker and others. And uh, yep. he he was gracious enough to let me use some of his illustrations as well. Now, admittedly, a lot of the photos and images that are used in the book are kind of classic sketches of iconic sea serpent sightings like the HMS Daedalus Valhalla and, um, you know, Agid Serpent. And then you you have many of the older Nessie photos, of course, the surgeon's fo- you know, the hoax surgeon's photo. And then the uh, so most of those were fortunately were public domain. Uh, yeah. You know, you can you can use an old photo or image if it was published something like 60 some years earlier. So, um, yeah. Uh, I was I was kind of lucky in that regard as as 
someone who self-publishes to, to have access to a lot of those older images and sketches. But, uh, but yes, Bill and uh, Bill Reb Samen and Sam Sheeran definitely contributed some wonderful illustrations to the book as well. And I think that really, uh, you know, I, I'm honored to, to have those uh, included. And you had a nice introduction by Steve Feltham, too. Yes, uh, Steve Feltham uh, has been camped alongside Loch Ness for 30 years, 30 plus years. And, um, you know, he, he, he talk about passion, Scott. I mean, here's a guy that basically quit his job, left his wife. I heard it was actually the other way around when he said he was going to Loch Ness to search for the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> That's a whole other story. I don't want to don't want to go there. But um, and, you know, basically moved in next to Loch Ness, he lives in a little research van there and he's got a telescope and uh, cameras and he basically spends every day on a vigil. He's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest uh, vigil of any Loch Ness monster investigator. Now, um, I hadn't ever really met Steve, but I was inspired by his story and his passion and determination. And so I reached out to him and I asked him if he'd ever written anything, if he'd ever been published. And he said that, no, he'd never written a book, but he'd published uh, one newspaper article. So uh, that's when it occurred to me. I thought, well, man, would you honor me by writing a forward to the book? Because, you know, I'm sure you have things, you know, I'm sure you have something to say and people would like to hear that. So, uh, so yeah, that was a nice coup. He wrote a really nice forward. He was very complimentary of my book, but he also did me a favor. He proofread the chapters of on Nessie and Locus monster and kind of helped me out with some corrections. There were a few, you know, things that needed to be kind of worked out just small details. And, uh, because I'm all about accuracy, I was, I was very happy to have, you know, his input on some of those Nessie chapters. Well, the Nessie story has a deep history. So yes. much went on, especially in the 1930s. Yes. That's when it yeah. all kind of, kind of started. And, um, yeah. So you're right, and uh, it, uh, it's been it's been one of the most enduring, iconic mysteries uh, for decades. Um, I think it'll always, you know, until it's proven conclusively one way or the other, um, I think it'll continue to be one of those mysteries that really captures people's imagination. And if if anyone's ever been to Loch Ness, you would understand just the, uh, you know, the atmosphere. Uh, you know, you've got this deep, mysterious, dark lake that's you know crowned surrounded by mist shrouded hills and old yeah it's like a castle ruins of castles or something you know it's it's amazing it's literally a wall of water it's not that long and it's not that wide but it's incredibly deep yes yeah 263 billion cubic feet of water you could stick the eiffel tower in it it's 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 mind-blowing how much water it's very dark and that's, yep. I think that's added to the mystery is you've got all this peat and sediment yep. that runs down the hills into the water and the visibility is incredibly poor. You know, they've put submarines down there. They've tried underwater cameras and uh, yep. it's really a challenge. So I think that, that that is one of the, those are some of the factors that have helped the Loch Ness mystery to endure so long. Yeah, I was really impressed with Lee Hill's summary of the Bacillus source thing at the end. It was very nice too. Well, thank you. And for people that don't know Lee, because he's kind of behind the scenes, Lee was on several episodes of the TV show Monster Quest, as as you and I were. And uh, he's uh, he's a friend of mine, and he's actually a traditional zoologist slash paleontologist. 
And uh, I kind of dragged him into this whole cryptozoology thing. He's he's open-minded, but he's also very skeptical, which is a nice balance to, to have friends like that. Yep. And um, so uh, I asked him to write just a little, you know, a few pages about Basilosaurus, just so people would understand what type of animal. Uh, and again, I'm not I'm not saying that whatever is in Loch Ness or these other lakes is exactly a Basilosaur. It, it's probably something different, but related if it exists, but, um, um, you know, and, and, and Lee, Lee is also very, very frank and he has incredible frankness and candor. For example, when talking about paleontology, you know, he'll, he'll tell me stuff like, you know, we're just making crap up, dude. (laughs) You know, you're looking at, at, at fossils that are millions of years old and you're guessing and you're speculating just like we were talking about. And it's, yeah, well, you know, it's not it's not an exact with. science by any stretch. So sometimes all you have to work with is a fragment. Exactly. So yeah, so there's a lot of speculation in straight paleontology as well. So Ab- absolutely. So well, it's been a wonderful conversation, and thank you for coming on. And hopefully, we can do this again sometime. I hope so, Scott. And I just want to say that uh, I'm again. It was an honor to come on and talk with you. You're one of the the investigators that I truly respect. Your intellect and your passion, and uh, you've been doing it a long time. And uh, I want to really thank you for all of your contributions. I, I do mention you in the acknowledgments of the book, but uh, you have repeatedly through the years uh, sent me lots of interesting articles and pieces of information that are very obscure and that have been very helpful in terms of, of, of researching this stuff. So uh, I, I really thank you for, for your marvelous contributions to this book as well. Well, you're welcome, and thank you. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks to everyone who listened in, and yeah, let's, let's do this again real soon, man. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk to you again. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.